Hello, and welcome to Banking Transforms, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The financial services industry is undergoing a transformation that's changing customer expectations and disrupted the non-traditional financial players, forced traditional banks to rethink their value proposition. One growing business model is banking as a service, a partnership in which banks and credit unions leverage their charters to enable non-banking institutions to offer financial services directly to consumers. According to recent studies, BASS is expected to reach $7 trillion in value by 2030. I'm really excited to have my friend Jason McCullough, one of the foremost authorities on the banking and fintech marketplace on the Banking Transform podcast. We discuss how banks can unlock new business opportunities and add value and why BASS has the potential to transform financial services. Banking as a service has grown in prominence due to the advances in technology that have made embedded banking possible and the rise in fintech firms that require support from traditional financial services companies. But ultimately, the rising demand for banking as a service has been driven by consumers' evolving preferences. Offering financial service, such as banking as a service, helps banks stay relevant in an increasingly competitive ecosystem, and it allows them to generate new sources of revenue. So welcome to the show, Jason. It, it has been a while. Somehow we missed each other last week, even though I was in Amsterdam. But be, before we begin, can you share a little bit about your background to our audience and also share the definition of banking as a service that is many times misunderstood? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, don't know how we missed each other here in Amsterdam. I guess everyone was like outside, excited about the fact there was sunlight and nice weather, and uh, <laughs> got yeah. got distracted. Um, I mean, briefly, you know, my background is you know I spent about twelve or thirteen years in more traditional operating roles, uh, primarily in the consumer lending sector, both in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, customer acquisition-focused marketing and product management. You know, when I relocated here to the Netherlands, I pivoted a bit into more advising and consulting roles, uh, and then, of course, also you know, writing, publishing, podcasting, having great conversations like this. Uh, as far as you know, defining banking as a service, it's interesting because I don't. In some ways, the the uh, business model it's describing or some of the business models it's describing are not inherently new, right? I mean, right. we've had banks like Bankcorp or uh, Metabank, which is now known as Pathword, sort of operating in this space of partnering with non-banks to, to offer some amount of payment services or, you know, card issuing for a long time. You know, I think some areas that have changed are the amount of banks that are interested in doing it, you know the rise of middleware platforms, and perhaps some uh, some distribution channels, and, and I'm sure we'll get into the embedded finance component of this, you know, as we go through the conversation as well. But I mean, ultimately, I think of banking as a service as uh, licensed banks partnering with non banks, and that could be fintechs or it could be non financial right. companies to offer. Uh, some type of financial service that that license is required for. So that could be holding deposits, it could be making loans, it could be offering payment capabilities. So you recently published a great analysis of banking as a service and the impact on traditional banking industry. 
So what has been, in a, in a little capsulized version, what has been the history and evolution of banking as a service over the years? I mean, uh, like I said, I think of this as sort of starting in, call it like the mid-aughts, mid uh, where you had the rise of, frankly, like a small handful of banks that really had niche focus niche focus areas, right? So I already mentioned um, Meta and Bankcorp. You know, you've had a number of banks specializing on, you know, the lending side um, as well. Uh, really, this explodes in sort of the 2010 to 2020 zone. And you can sort of debate the exact start and stop point, but just to make it easy, let's say like that decade, 2010 to 2020, with, you know, post uh, post Dodd-Frank, specifically the Durban Amendment, making smaller banks very attractive uh, as debit issuing partners. The explosion of sort of the first and call it whatever first second wave of fintech. So, you know, you have Prosper Lending Club. You know, those were partnering with banks to originate loans. Uh, also, around this time, you have the the founding of uh, some of the neo banks that are still you know still around today, Chime. Um, and then more recently, uh, the, you know, I sort of think of it as like the maturation or the rise of native banking as a service players. So that'd be the explosion of banking as a service middleware platforms to simplify integrating with some of these underlying bank, uh, you know, banks that are not necessarily well known for having great technology and also, uh, banks that sort of specifically focus on, banking as a service as a business model. So examples of that could include uh, Column, uh, which was founded you know, quite recently. Right. Or if you look a little further back, uh, you know, Cross River, I would argue, also falls into that bucket of a bank that was really founded with the purpose of pursuing these um, you know, banking as a service business models, operating models. So what was interesting, we talked about a little bit before the podcast, is that at... Um, Money 2020, it was very clear that embedded finance and banking as a service was a key theme throughout the whole event. And actually, a lot of the players on the floor showing their wares really were part of this whole ecosystem. And, and while banking as a service traditionally was seen as a way to deposit generation card issuing for a non-banking entity, a fintech for usually, the services offered through this model actually have extended quite a bit further, haven't they? And you mentioned a little bit about the lending platforms, but you know things like uh, uh, you know buy now, pay later, and other things as well. Correct? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, you can always debate or quibble. You know, what should be included or excluded from the definition? You know, some people would point at. Um, issuer processors, so like a Marketa, a Galileo. Some people might call that banking as a service. Some people might say, no, that's not. Um, similarly, uh, payment orchestration platforms. So in the US, that would be something like a Sila Move that basically serve as a single point for companies that need to do a lot of uh, money movement, payment processing. Some people might say that that should be included. Some people might say that shouldn't be included in the definition. So I mean, I think sort of where the exact boundaries um, are, you know, I think definitely open to debate. But to your point, you know, there are a lot of things that go beyond, hey, we're going to hold customer deposits and issue a debit card. That's sort of like 
we saw that huge explosion in, you know, call it like 2019, 2020 through maybe late last year, early this year in, oh, well, I guess everyone is going to have a debit card because it feels like an easy way to add incremental revenue. You know, I, I would say, obviously, like all the companies in that, in that sort of space are, are not necessarily uh, proving to have a viable business model. Right. Um, but to your point, there are a lot of capabilities that go beyond just sort of the simple hold deposit issue debit card. Yeah. And it's interesting because I we had an interview with uh, Alex Johnson last week and and he talked about the fact that some of these niche banks really are not not holding their own. They're, it's very hard to get scale. But there is something that's driving this appeal of a banking as a service model. Why are financial institutions, traditional financial institutions in this case, building partnerships beyond their traditional branch network? What is driving this appeal of the banking as a service model? I mean, I think particularly in the United States, which has a very interesting and, and I would argue sort of very different history when it comes to you know bank licensing and bank regulation. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's kind of a lifeline, right? I mean, you're talking about you know growing or relevance outside of a branch. Network, you know, I know I'm not telling you or probably your listeners anything new here, but you know, the United States, what four thousand plus banks plus another four or five thousand credit unions. You know, if you look at most other developed Western countries, Canada, the UK, France, Spain, you know, where where you were in the Netherlands uh, last week. These tend to be very highly concentrated with a handful of banks that dominate the market. The U.S. very, very fragmented landscape for you know reasons we don't need to get into um, today. But you know you need look no further than a chart of the number of physical branches, you know, or the number of licensed banks to realize, you know, despite. Uh, many policymakers, regulators, best efforts. The trend is towards consolidation. You know, I do not think there's no reason to believe that the underlying economic factors, market factors that are driving that. There's no reason to think that that is going to change. Um, so, you know, what is the appeal of banking as a service? You know, if you're a small, you know, small community bank, local bank. The number one differentiator asset that you have is that bank charter. Historically, that was paired with the geographic footprint of your branch, you know, branch network. You know, it's 2023. The you know, we don't need a physical geographic footprint to do most banking, right? Particularly sort of consumer banking. And so that asset, that that physical footprint, which a small local bank uh, could use to differentiate and drive its, its business, increasingly is is devalued. I, I don't wanna I don't want to say it's completely irrelevant, but it, it is greatly diminished in its value versus even five or ten years ago. And so if you are that bank in Tennessee or Hawaii or Virginia, and you're you know you're having those meetings of okay, you know we see the writing on the wall. We still you know, we have this branch based business. 
But how do we continue to grow? You know, you're not going to go out and build new branches, presumably. Hopefully not. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, maybe if you're if you're a, a, a city or a chase, and there are some very sort of strategic areas, maybe. But I mean, if you're a you know a sub ten billion bank, you know your strategy is not we're going to go build a zillion new branches, and that's how we're going to grow and capture market share. Banking as a service provides a you know, an operating model where they can leverage the charter that they have, hopefully leverage expertise in risk management. So both, you know, balance sheet, obviously, right. also compliance uh, regulation, um, and use the asset they have, charter, to grow through partnerships with other companies that need those capabilities and either, you know, do not have slash do not want to get, do not want to become a bank. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the you know, the solution for community banks is it provides an avenue to hopefully continue growing without, you know, trying to lean on an existing branch network. What are some of the newer partnerships that you found interesting? What are some of the the you know, you mentioned the fact that smaller organizations can do this, and that it's been pretty much the pervasiveness of smaller organizations that have looked at banking as a service as an opportunity, as you said, to grow without adding branches. What are some of the 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 newer partnerships that you say yeah, that's pretty cool what they're doing? Well, the, this I'm answering a slightly different question here, yeah, but I, I'll try to get to yours as well. No, <laughs> I mean, e- even even since I um, you know first wrote and published. This report, which was earlier this year, I mean, it, it, it's you know still it's new. Only halfway through the year, it's still new. Uh, even since then, you know, there have been you know substantial uh, signs that there are you know changes in in process in in this space. Right, you had Fifth Third, which is by no means a small bank, right. uh, acquire a banking as a service platform called Rise. Uh, and then more recently, you had, you know, FIS. Yeah, very recently, uh, you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Very recently. Uh, you know, yeah. um, have F- FIS, you know, a, a stalwart in the core banking and payment processing space, acquire uh, Bond, a banking as a service platform. So, so there are signs that, you know, what uh, had really exploded in the past two, three, four years, you know, may or may not be viable or there may not be enough uh, demand to support the number of players that had entered that banking as a service space. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, we we also interviewed um, Kurt from uh, Coastal Community Bank. And, and you know, it's it's interesting when you peel back the layers of some of these, you know, they some of the things they brought up is their their willingness to build partnerships and also let them go if they're not working. But when you mm-hmm. peel back the layer of their partnership with uh, one, which was mm-hmm. a few years ago, and then the acquisition of one by Walmart, it's a really interesting story where you say, you know, this this very modest sized financial institution could end up with multi-million new relationships, even though it's one step removed. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a neat opportunity. You know, it, it's it's when you look at this, it's, it really is a brand new business model that provides great growth perspe- um, potential, uh, 
while there are some, you know, pits and perils to it as well. But, um, you know, one of the elements that, you know, some of the early players did not really have to pay as much attention to because it was a new model and, and there wasn't a real format to it. And they were also many times partnering with new fintech firms that were just looking for any partner. It's the need to transform the back office for what is becoming the future of banking. What is what are things you're seeing in the marketplace as to how a traditional bank must rethink their back office to be able to play in this expanding world of providing services one step removed in some cases? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely has the potential to represent an increase in complexity, right? Um I'll try to do this without na- without naming anybody specific, right. uh, but but you can imagine it's like okay, you know, let's say I am the underlying bank partner. It's entirely possible that a single bank could have relationships with multiple middleware platforms, as well as direct relationships with a number of fintechs or consumer facing companies. So potentially, you know single licensed bank, you know, ultimately, and I have to admit, I have not had time yet to fully read the updated third-party uh, guidance yeah. that was released, interagency um, guidance on third-party risk management. I haven't read the whole thing yet. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the bank is responsible for the regulatory risk of those relationships, whether it's, you know, through a BAS platform intermediary or a direct relationship. So if you're talking about, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 relationships, plus those uh, fintechs slash BAS platforms and customers, uh, it's just a, a quite different level of complexity for managing things like you know, KYC, BSA, AML risk, um, fair lending concerns, which we've seen uh, some action on recently with a FDIC consent order um, in that space. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I think the the number one area uh, you know that I think we're we're seeing that evolution happen right now is hey, like it is quite a different thing to say I'm you know a five branch bank in Oklahoma, you know. I have X customers who are direct customers of my bank. I've done KYC. We do the transaction monitoring, blah, 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 ourselves, versus you know, potentially multiple intermediaries and uh, very different types of clients, customers with potentially different risk profiles than the bank may be used to. Right. And so, I mean, certainly there are other areas to think about as well, um, but that is probably the one that is is top of mind. So it's interesting in at Money 2020 Amsterdam, there's there was no lack of players. I mean it, it's amazing how many organizations you see on the floor that are that are looking for business in different ways, trying to go to market in different ways. There are so many solutions out there for not only financial service firms but even the intermediaries. How do you recommend organizations choose a partner? And what have you seen gone wrong as organizations try to digitally transform without maybe sometimes being fully aware of all the aspects that you started just bring up a minute ago? Yeah, and I mean, I would point out that this is a relevant question for 
both sides of those those partnerships or those relationships, right? I mean, you know, imagine that you were, uh, you know, a customer of Bond, and now Bond is being acquired by FIS. I mean, you know, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think it's too early to, you know, it's too early to say we we lack the information. I lack the information to comment on that credibly, but it really is sort of a both sides question of, hey, if I'm, you know, if I'm a fintech or a non fintech consumer brand and I want to build a financial product, I want to make sure I'm selecting a partner, whether it's a BAS platform or, you know, directly selecting a bank. I want to make sure that I'm picking a partner where there are, you know, there's clear roles and responsibilities where, you know, due diligence has been done um, and where I understand, you know, what are the downside risks and, and how do I mitigate those? I mean, you can imagine, you know, if you were a, you know, a client of Blue Ridge or a client of, you know, another um, partner bank that gets hit with some sort of consent order, you know, even if that doesn't directly impact the program that you're running, right? It certainly will impact the risk appetite and potentially the, the just the sheer capacity of your partner. So, I mean, I think if you're, you know, sort of shopping around and you're the fintech or, you know, non, non-financial brand building something, you want to sort of do your own due diligence to make sure, hey, is the partner I'm selecting sort of match my risk tolerance, you know, match what it is that I'm trying to do? Vice versa, uh, if you're a bank and you're looking at whether it's middleware platforms or consumer-facing fintech brand, you know, making sure that that those, um, you know, that the economics work, that the incentives are aligned. Um, because, yeah, I think as this question sort of hints at, you know, we're seeing a lot of risks that were perhaps easier to ignore in 2020, 2021 that are now very, yeah, yeah, yeah early 2023 that, um, you know, as certain aspects of the market have turned, are, are proving you know much more difficult to ignore as regulators sort of step up their their activity in this area. Yeah. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. I'm joined today by Jason McCullough, financial advisor, consultant, and publisher of a new study in the state of banking as a service. We've been discussing the transformation of the banking industry and the market potential of banking as a service and embedded banking and embedded finance. So, Jason, we we touched upon a little bit before the break, but how do financial institutions need to reimagine their back office to be be able to provide a platform that is marketable and is really forward-facing? So, I mean, part of this is just, um, you know, adapting operational models to work effectively with 
multiple third-party partners, right? Um, you know, I don't know what your experience working with legal and compliance personnel has been across your career. I, I can tell you that in you know numerous roles I've had, you know, not always the most uh, technologically sophisticated teams, right? And, and I'm talking very just like uh, minutia of okay, we're re- you know reviewing marketing material. And it consists of emailing PDFs back and forth that would then get marked up, like literally marked up in pen or marker and emailed back. That's not fun when it's inside a single organization, but imagine scaling that to numerous external partners and you know, increasingly complex things like credit lending models, uh, ensuring fair lending compliance, uh, you know, UDAP, etc. So, I mean, uh, I think... From an external perspective, so not having been bank side running one of these programs, I would suspect, argue, that to do so effectively, you really need to have tooling in place, operating models in place to do it in a uh, streamlined, efficient Way and I have to imagine that that's you know something that not only do you want to be able to demonstrate to potential clients, but also something you need to be able to demonstrate to regulators. It's like yes, we have line of sight on the risks that our BAS platform partners are taking, if applicable, that uh, our N fintechs and their clients customers are taking, uh, and, and that's not something that you know a typical existing bank is configured to do yeah and you know you you've mentioned regulations and uh um compliance a little bit already but you know how is the evolving regulations and it, it, it's evolving probably f- more and faster in the u.s than anywhere else because they're playing a game of catch-up but how is how is regulatory environment and government scrutiny really impacting some of these new business models we're talking about I mean, it, 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 the geographic, geographic comparison is an interesting one. I mean, between living, you know, living abroad, living outside of the United States, as well as working with clients, working on projects um, in a number of different jurisdictions, you know, one of the interesting things, and this is not only true in the U.S., but uh, is that you know, regulators, like any other organization have a limited amount of resources and tend to prioritize those based on sort of what is either going to have the biggest impact and or what is just sort of demanding the most attention, what is sort of the loudest uh, loudest problem. And, you know, I think for quite a long time, uh, banking as a service activities, even if they sort of weren't under that moniker, but some of the stuff we described earlier in the show, you know, relatively niche, uh, a small number of banks involved, uh, relatively small number or small scale number of consumer-facing companies involved. That really got supercharged, you know, over, I would argue, like, during the scope of the pandemic, when you saw fintech VC funding, you know, explode for two years, two and a half years, and all of that money flow into fintechs, the majority of which needed a bank partner in some capacity of what 
you know, what they wanted to build and operate. That gave rise to BAS platforms to solve the pain of integrating with underlying banks. So the argument being speed to market, time to market. And now you're seeing government, uh, government scrutiny, regulators, legislators catch up and say, oh, hey, like, you know, this used to be a relatively niche thing with maybe, you know, a dozen banks playing in this space. All of a sudden, you know, a hundred plus banks want in, you know, rise of the BAS platforms, which I would, you know, the exact models as far as how they interact with banks and fintechs varies, but adds an extra level of complexity that, that didn't used to be there, right? I mean, if you yeah. were, you know, if you were bank Bancorp and you were dealing with a prepaid debit issue, or you know, not that Bancorp hasn't had issues in the past because they have, but it was sort of this you know one to one relationship versus a one to many relationship and, and a relatively it, clean model. To be honest, I mean, yeah, it, yes, it, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't expand, expanding to areas that have heavy regulation that they're not as aware of. So I mean, I think the the impact of what we're seeing unfold now is uh, it is going to serve as a uh, dis- either disincentive or think about it as like an added cost for banks that want to pursue this business model, right? I think that, you know, based on, um, you know, bank execs that I've talked with, uh, particularly at smaller banks, I think that there was perhaps a bit of a uh, misunderstanding, mis-selling that, you know, BAS, particularly for a bank working with a BAS platform, could serve as a sort of very easy incremental source of revenue that the bank really wouldn't need to do a lot to realize. And I would argue that that, I mean, that was never true. Uh, And now we're sort of seeing the consequences of that. Like if you're a bank and you want to do this model, it is doable. I don't think anyone is saying, you know, I don't think any regulators are saying, you know, this needs to go away. It's absolutely not permissible. Like that's not what the conversation is. However, you do need to have adequate systems and adequate staff in place to fulfill your regulatory responsibilities. And all of that adds up to money, right? So how is that likely to play out? Okay, I mean, you're gonna, you know, you're always gonna have varying risk appetites across different players. That is already true. Um, But you might see, okay, do we wanna work with uh, a brand new FinTech that has raised $1 $1 million, $2 million. You know, I think that you're going to see the sort of uh, barriers to entry go up where, you know, for banks that are more risk adverse, they're going to want to see, uh, you know, stronger regulatory compliance staff at the partners they're working with. They're going to want to see better capitalization. Maybe they don't want to work with anybody that's pre-product. Maybe they only want to work with companies that are sort of already operating. So I think the sort of aggregate impact is going to be, you know, somewhat of an increase in friction and expense. Um, And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you look at, we're gonna we're gonna see consolidation on all sides. I mean, we we see fintech firms that that need funding that aren't going to get it. You see ones that aren't going to ever get scale. Everybody's looking for a partner to make that business model s- flow better. 
But as you said, there are no shortcuts. You still have to do all the due diligence, but probably more than ever because um, the risks are higher. I mean, we we only have to look at, and the risks are different than they were. You know, you, you didn't necessarily think, geez, what would happen if the primary bank that was serving a lot of these players um, went under in a day, you know, and all of a sudden you go, geez, you know, a partner with Silicon Valley Bank is gone. How does that change the model? And how do you have to look at all these partners to go, is everybody okay? You know, along the same line, and we sometimes forget the people aspect of this because it's, it's very much technology-based in the way the, the platform runs. But there's a, an increased need for talent and experience that understands the new technologies, but even more so the, more, the new models. I mean, you're a good example of it. You're, mm-hmm. you're in the field regularly helping organizations build better solutions. How does this need or does this need actually open the door for broader third-party collaborations with companies that that have a broader perspective? Maybe it's the intermediary models. How, does this really open the door for, for more partnerships that way? Uh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, the largest banks are always going to have the budget and the ability to build a lot of this stuff internally or to acquire, right? Um, I mean, we already talked about Fifth Third, we talked about FIS, but for everybody else, you know, the sort of community banks that in some sense have the strongest need for this as their historic business, um, you know, continues to come under pressure. Uh, Obviously, we have like a sort of very temporal risk happening with smaller banks being overly exposed to commercial real estate. We don't need to open that uh, Pandora's box right now. Um, But yeah, if you're a sub-10 billion bank and you're interested in pursuing these models, you you may not have the talent in-house. You may not have the ability either from a cost perspective or just a geographic perspective to attract the talent you need to build these kinds of offerings. And so I think that does, I mean, it does help explain the appeal of the BAS platforms, you know, the middleware platforms to date. And to your point, I think it does open the door for, you know, more of these third-party collaborations. And it's not like this is without historical precedent, right? I mean, I'm not by any means an expert in the sort of entire life cycle of a mortgage, but that is an example of a product where, you know, maybe whatever, 30 or 40 years ago, you went down to uh, Libertyville Bank and Trust, which was like the small local bank where I grew up. And like, you know, you get a mortgage, that bank holds it for the life of that mortgage, services it. If you default, does collections, does foreclosure. Now you've taken that life, you know, that entire life cycle from, uh, application, underwriting, origination, servicing, and sliced it up into a million very specialized pieces. Right. That doesn't come you know, without its own problems, as we certainly saw during the pandemic. Um, but it's just a very, very different operating model, you know, including the economics. And I think that is now we're seeing hints of that in uh, you know, in consumer lending, whether it's like credit cards, personal loans, in uh, you know, banking, deposit products, like, does it work to take some of these products that would have sat, you know, in a bank and chop up 
different pieces of uh, responsibility for operating it. And also, obviously, going along with that, chopping up some of the economics that go along with that. And I think, you know, some of these are fairly well answered, right? The idea of, right. you know, having a non-bank lender that partners with an underlying bank, this is not new, whether it's like credit card, personal loan. Um, I think there are some open questions remaining about, for specific product categories or specific customer segments, you know, is it viable or is it not viable? Yeah. Um, you know, finally, as, as you we're, we're making these crystal balls shorter and shorter in duration, but if you were to use your crystal ball, what do you see as the biggest area of opportunity and possibly risk in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I mean, I'm always, uh, always reluctant to make predictions. I mean, I, I mentioned um, commercial real estate in passing. You know, I do think that that is a, a, a you know, a little bit outside of the scope of this conversation, but a problem that we're going to continue to see uh, develop in, you know, in the coming 12 months. And, and I mean, to try to link that back to this conversation, smaller community banks tend to have outsized concentration to commercial real estate, both sectorally and also geographically, right? And so, you know, the issues facing that market, you know, post-pandemic, uh, heightened um, vacancy rates, you know, declining valuations, plus uh, rising interest rate environment, you know, I think that there's there's quite a bit of um, risk and uncertainty in how that plays out. I would argue that, in a sense, that helps make the case, and I think actually Alex uh, wrote something about this in relation to SVB specifically, but it helps make a case for the potential to use banking as a service as a diversification play definitely. for smaller yeah, banks. Definitely. Where it's like, hey, instead of having I serve, you know, Nashville and all my customers, both uh, commercial and consumer, are geographically here. Um, versus, hey, like, can I operate on a national scale so I have geographic diversification? Can I operate across different product categories, different segments? Just spread my risk. And imp- yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know. Hopefully that answered, answered oh, yeah, the question. It, does, yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> you know, Jason, you know, I, I mentioned your uh, banking as a service state of the marketplace report, which is really, we just scratched the service and what you discussed there. And actually, any organization that is looking at getting into the banking as a service realm. His report is extraordinarily detailed into what's happened in the past, what organizations are doing, what kind of financial um, results they've been getting, things of this nature that I think anybody who gets in this space has to read. And it it is as current today as it was when it was written just a few months ago. So Jason, how does somebody get a hold of that report? Yeah, they can find it um, on my site at fintechbusinessweekly.com. Okay, that's simple enough. And and again, Jason, you know I'm a, a raving fan of of the work you're doing, writing regularly, doing podcasts, all the perspectives you give in the marketplace. How do people find you? And I would imagine it's the same way, but uh, how do they follow you? Uh, yeah, I mean, they can find the newsletter also, of course, at fintechbusinessweekly.com. I am still on Twitter. We'll 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 see uh, we'll see if how that plays out. How long it goes for? But it's uh, Mukula J A, which is my last name. Um, and uh, LinkedIn is Jason Mukula. Great, Jason. 
I can't believe it's been so long that we waited to get you on the podcast, but we will have you back again because, you know, I enjoy my conversation with you. You always bring new insights that certainly make me smarter, which which isn't hard because I have a low bar right now personally, but <laughs> people mentioned that Money 2020, you know, how do you keep on top of all this? I said, it's not what I know, it's who I know and what they mm. know because you just can't keep track of it all. But um, again, I'm glad you were on the, able to get you on the podcast and uh, hope everything goes well for you. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hasledge, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Remember, banks simply do it business as usual to solve customer problems are the risk of being left behind. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.